Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Sophie. I'm Yelly. And this is She's All Fat. The podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. Now in our final season. In this episode, we're covering land and body sovereignty and crushing colonialism with Jen Deerenwater. It's an excellent interview because Jen is so smart and intersectional in her work. And for non-Native listeners, this is a good primer on how fat justice and Indigenous justice are connected. For our Indigenous listeners and other BIPOC folks, there's stuff for you here too, but we'd like to offer a content note for settler colonialism, genocide, forced displacement, and violence against Indigenous folks. If that doesn't seem like content you want to engage with right now, take care of yourselves and stop listening at any time. We love you. I have a confession. I have a new obsession coming to us from a family member. It's a new web series starring Catherine Scarborough called Big Girl. Catherine says, I wanted to create a show with a fat protagonist who doesn't hate herself, who has already done the work of loving her body just as it is, and in which the conflicts for the main character are external. It's been a labor of love, and I'm very proud of it. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. A labor of love, just like SAF. We have to support. No choice but to support. (laughs) Catherine is so sweet and funny, and I can't wait to watch the rest of the episodes. Yelly, where can the family watch? Big Girl is streaming on a platform for indie filmmakers called Sika TV. That's S-E-E-K-A. You can watch all five episodes for free without even making an account at watch.sika.tv slash big hyphen girl. We'll link that in the show notes along with some other links to Catherine's work. You can follow Catherine at KS Scarborough on Insta. I'm so excited for y'all to check out her work. And remember, if you're doing something cool and fat related, shoot us an email so we can shout you the heck (laughs) out. I want to shout the heck out of this family love letter we just received. We've opened a Google form for you, our beloved family members, to write little notes of love to this fat community you've helped build. We'll be reading and posting your letters all season long. Speaking of, we have a very special letter from Soccer Hannah. Oh my god. Soccer Hannah! (laughs) My child, Soccer Hannah. Soccer Hannah says, Hiya to my favorite fatties. Today I was feeling particularly mushy and sentimental about this being the final season of SAF. Sophie, you'd remember me as Soccer Hannah from many seasons (laughs) back when I was a teeny tiny 16-year-old body posy newbie. Stumbling through my adolescent life, I was in the middle of an ED, and after four years of listening, I'm happy to say that your pod has transformed me into a body posy (laughs) swan. Oh my god. (laughs) 
I am now at the tail end of recovery, just turned 20 and am in my first year of uni. I grew with your podcast and learned to love and nurture my body. I just wanted to let y'all know the difference your work has made to my life. I wouldn't be the person I am today without you guys. And then they have the little cry smiley face (laughs) with so, so much love, Hannah. Oh my God. I am so glad to hear from you, soccer Hannah. I feel like you've gone this whole way with us. And I'm so glad to hear your updates. I want to remind you that we didn't do that work for you. You did that work for you. And I'm so proud of you. You're amazing. (laughs) And I'm so glad that you're part of the family. And I'm so proud of you. I'm just so happy to hear all this. This is an amazing update. We love you, Soccer Hannah. Yes. Also, Soccer Hannah, please know that we talk about you constantly. That goes for the entire family. We always, we're obsessed with y'all. We talk about you every week. Honestly, (laughs) it's true. I'll be like, remember that email? I I wonder how that person's doing. So like, I truly love getting these updates. It makes me very, very happy. Um, Thank you for writing, Hannah. And I'm so proud of you. Check the show notes to write your love letter to the family. All right, everyone. So this is the part of the intro where we'd normally be talking about our Patreon, but family, all perfect things must come to an end. Some perfect things can stay, though. It's true. September is the last month the SAF Patreon will be up in full swing, but long live the patron-only Facebook group and the archive of minisodes we put out for y'all over the last four years. Logistically, this means we're pausing the monthly charges on Patreon, so current patrons have paid their last $7 to SAF. Thanks, babes. And unfortunately, new folks won't be able to join the Patreon anymore. But we're currently working on some way that we can make our literally hundreds of bonus minisodes available to purchase as little bundles of extra content for anyone who's new to the pod or never got the chance to join Team Paisley Moo Moo. We'll update you on this in the next few episodes. We love you so much, current patrons, former patrons, and would-be patrons. Send us an email or a DM if you have any questions about how this Patreon pause is going to work. That's all our news for this week. Now here's the episode. Okay, Fatmali, I am here today with Jen Dierenwater, who is a journalist, a writer, organizer, and so much more that we will get into. I'm going to read these first two sentences of her bio. Jen Dierenwater is a bisexual, two-spirit, multiply disabled citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and an award-winning journalist and organizer who covers the myriad of issues her communities face with an intersectional lens. Jen is the founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism, a Disability Futures Fellow, and a former New Economies Reporting Project Fellow. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Osio, hello. Thank you for having me on. Yay. So we gave you that little more formal bio. Do you want to give us a little more intro to yourself and what you like and what you like to do? Sure. So I'm a pretty creative person and I, I kind of use my interest and background in the arts to try to move forward my communities and help us progress and move towards a day when we no longer have colonization and all of the ills that came with it to Turtle Island. And just for folks who maybe aren't familiar with the term Turtle Island, that is what a lot of us Indigenous people refer to instead of using the term North America. Oh, okay. 
I didn't know that either. Thank you for telling me. Yeah. So I, I'm a classically trained vocalist. I've been writing since I was a kid. I do photography. You know, so I just, I really love the arts. And, and for me, it was like, well, I can, I can use this as a way to try to advance the causes of my communities and other minoritized people. And so that's, that's really what I try to do. I spend some time doing community organizing as well. That's kind of more of a behind the scenes thing rather than, you know, a public facing thing that I do like my journalism. Got it. Love that. Can you talk a little bit about your connection to body positivity or fat justice, anything like that, even if it's just inside. Yeah, I mean I I'm fat. Uh I have been for most of my life. I did and still to some extent struggle a little bit with um disordered eating throughout my life. You know, I did have a time where I was, you know, skinny for me because I was really deep in an eating disorder and just not taking care of myself. Been there. Yeah, I, as so many of us have. Yeah. yeah. So I think it was probably like uh, I'd say like my sort of later 20s, like 26, 27, when I started learning about the term body positivity and size acceptance and started to have a little a little better grasp on why I had the feelings I had around my own body, you know, where those came from and how those were also rooted in other forms of oppression like white supremacy and ableism. So that's just on a, on a personal level, like this is something that I have been working towards and finding love and acceptance of my own body in all of its ways from the disabilities and health issues to being fat. And then in terms of work, I try to connect all of these different issues together the best that I can. You know, I, I don't focus on like fat positivity or body acceptance specifically, but I have written about it some and I do talk about it. You know, I do a lot of environmental coverage and, you know, it's amazing how that even connects to you know, fat phobia, or excuse me, fat antagonism, rather, which is a term created by Denary Moore, who's amazing, and people should go check them out if they don't Absolutely. know Absolutely. But yeah, just to like point out that little connection within the environment where you'd be like, what does that have to do with fatness? But there was uh, someone from the West Virginia Manufacturers Association who was talking on this bill that was going through the West Virginia House of Delegates. Uh, in 2019, I believe it was. And one of their excuses for saying why, oh, the the State Department of Environmental Protection didn't need to be concerned with making sure the water was clean and basically stopping pollution from things like coal mining and, and fracking and stuff. And one of their arguments was that, well, West Virginians don't eat much fish, which they don't because most of the water is polluted. And then they went on to say, and West Virginians are fat so they can handle more toxins and pollutants in their oh. bodies. So, oh, you know, my God. Yeah, just, just to give a connection to how some of the work I do still links to like fatness i mean it's it's wild the stuff that people say sometimes it's so blatant (laughs) that i am taken even living it every day sometimes it's so blatant i am taken aback that is wild yeah there's a a, an organizer in west virginia that had told me about that a a couple years ago and i was like oh my god really that can't be and i looked it up and sure enough that that was in the the record (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> the West Virginians are fat so they can handle more pollutants. Good so yeah, God. that's just one example <laughs> of how the work I, I do like connects to to fatness and size and such. And even <laughs> just in that, like obviously there's a connection to 
like protecting the land. There's a connection mm-hmm. to diff- class politics there. There's a connection to all sorts of stuff. I mean, as we get into the meat of it for this episode, mm-hmm. I want to remind listeners that as always, if you're looking to learn more about how colonialism and white supremacy interact and relate with fat antagonism, as you said, or fat phobia or fat justice go back to last season read fearing the black body use our book club resources and specifically if you're interested in more native stuff i would listen to the episode that we played of the great podcast all my relations and check out the show notes for them or on our resources page we'll be linking all that in the show notes for this episode too but just wanted to let you know in case you're feeling a little in deep waters and realizing you need to learn some more okay so now let's get into it so can you tell us about Crushing Colonialism and the work that you do there and your mission and all of that. Sure. So Crushing Colonialism tells the stories of indigenous people to create a world that values and honors indigeneity. I started Crushing Colonialism as an organization back in 2017, but we started off as a Facebook page in 2016. You know, and our mission is to uplift and tell the stories of indigenous people through multimedia work while supporting those doing the work. And our organization is founded and operated by indigenous people working in a variety of media fields across the world. You know, some of the things that we do is we work to try to increase the pay and employment of indigenous media makers while also promoting their work. Um, Eventually, someday, fingers crossed, we'll be able to provide funding for media projects and, you know, just trying to increase access to professional representation. And by doing this, we control our narratives and we can work towards crushing colonialism in that way. Wow, I love that. Can you tell me how people who are white or otherwise not indigenous can get involved in and support the work that crushing colonialism does? Yeah. So you can follow us all over online. So we have a website, crushingcolonialism.org. So you can learn more about us there and learn ways to support us, including donating if you have money. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's like significantly less than 1% of philanthropic dollars go to any native causes and almost none of that goes to indigenous media. So if you have money, we need it. (laughs) All right. Yes. Um, You can also follow us all over social media, which is really important. You know, I, I, as much as I, I have a love hate for social media, it's, it's important when you have those metrics of being able to say we have X followers because that shows potential funders, you know, Hey, we're worth money. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So you can follow us on Facebook at IRCC.resist. And you can follow us on Instagram at Crushing Colonialism and on Twitter at CRSH Colonialism. Okay, great. We will have all those in the show notes. That all sounds amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about, because we, you know, our on our homepage for our podcast, we talk about telling fat stories. And so that is like the, the, the mission of crushing colonialism is like something that dovetails well, because I obviously understand and love the power of telling people's own narratives and stories. Can you tell me about some of your favorite projects that you have helped through crushing colonialism or some things you're excited about right now that are happening with it? Well, we've taken a little bit of a programming break to try to focus on 
building a, a solid foundation to, to make this an organization that can stand the test of time and not sure. something that just comes in for a bit and then goes away. So that little programming hiatus has been helpful. You know, we're don't have a great deal of resources. So, you know, the programming break was necessary. Also, we did a lot of programming in 2020. We did nine virtual events. Wow. And by the end of that, I was so exhausted Tired, and stressed yeah. out. I was like, I can't anymore. And that was in the, you know, the middle of the pandemic. And yes. so, yeah. And, and all of those are available on our YouTube channel, which is just crushing colonialism. So people can go in and watch them. Like we did an event called Indigenous Spoonies Revolt that featured Tony Enos, Frank Wall, and Kira Sherwood O'Regan just talking about disability and art and indigeneity. You know, we did a, a COVID roundtable with some indigenous journalists. We had virtual decolonized beats, which was mm. an event that I had put on here in DC that was meant to bring together indigenous and black, you know, creatives to, and, and all the money that we raised at the door went to all the people who performed or showed their work. And so from that, I was like, you know, why don't we just bring all the BIPOC fam in together and, and do a virtual decolonized beat? So, you know, we did that and we did do a couple of recent like virtual decolonized beats with some indigenous DJs and musicians you know, so I just I'm always trying to find ways to like promote people's work and get it out there because when we're all doing well, I do well, you know. Yes. It's 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 an uplifting the community and giving the community the supports or at least some of the supports they need to the best of what we're capable of right now. But also it, it is a little I'll say selfish on my part because when my other community members do well, I do well. Yes, you know? of course. And so yeah, it's it to me it's a very reciprocal thing. Like I'm not just here to help myself and build my career up. I'm here to help others and and support them in that work as well. Absolutely. I love yeah. all that. I'm excited to check out some of those events. Those sound awesome. Yeah, they're like I said all on our YouTube channel. And we've we've got some things we're looking at for like 2022 coming down the pipeline. Uh, not ready to announce any of that just yet, though. Okay, well, stay tuned. We'll be sure to all subscribe so we can stay tuned. I will say I myself am also working on two books right now. Oh, my so God. That is, that You're is so also busy. Another, I know. I keep saying all my friends that I'm I'm a workaholic. Like, it, it is genuinely a problem. I'm trying to <laughs> get better about it. It is a problem. Um, <laughs> I, just, I get very – there's so many interesting stories and projects out there and so much that I want to do to to help and support people and tear down you know these colonial governments and such so that I just get like way overburdened and take on too much but I am really (laughs) excited about these books too so is there any info about them you can tell us about that we could support yeah yeah so I can I can tell you some so one of them is called sacred and subversive uh, and that is, I'm co-editing that with Jara Brown. So it's Jara's project. She has a blog that she she has, and I think it's sacred sacredandsubversive.com. It's a blog about queer people's experiences with faith and religion. Oh, you know, wow. from from the good to the bad. You know, it's the whole gamut of stories. And Jara decided, you know what, I want to do a book, and 
Jarrah asked me to contribute a piece, and I did. And then I helped bring in some some other contributors. And eventually, Jarrah was like, you know, you're already doing some of the work of an editor. Why don't you just be a co-editor with me? <laughs> and it's such a great project, and Jarrah is amazing. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll do this. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so we have a literary agent now through the Einstein Literary Management organization that's in New York City. And so we're just feeling really excited. You know, we're working on getting our proposal really tight before we start sending it around to, you know, editors and publishers. But, you know, we will hopefully soon be putting out a call for submissions. And we really want to represent all faiths and gender and sexualities within the scope of queerness. Yeah. Wow. We'd love to share that for you when you're ready for that. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Can't wait to read that when it eventually comes out. Yeah. There's nothing like this book. And we we started off thinking, oh, we're going to do this with nonfiction essays. But now we've decided we're going to include poetry. We're maybe considering including art. You know, we're like how just giving trying to find a way to give people the resource to tell their story in what manner feels best for them. That's amazing. Do you want to mention your other project or Yeah, not? so the, the other one is still... So I 2016 is when I really started covering pipeline projects. I started with mm-hmm. Dakota Access Pipeline. And then in 2017, I started focusing a lot on the Mariner East 2 pipeline, which is also an energy transfer pipeline, which is what DAPL is as well. And so I was just going back and forth to Pennsylvania quite a bit, you know, following that. And as time went on and I dug in deeper and deeper because I'm a total nerd for research. I love research. (laughs) (laughs) But as time went on, I realized, oh, wait, this is not just one pipeline. This is a series of pipelines. Oh, wait, there are Mm. cracker plants being built, which cracker plants is where they make plastic. So all this fracked gas that pipeline companies and the government like to say is for energy independence. We don't actually need it anymore. The industry inflated the need. And so now their way of trying to make money back is through plastic. Oh, God, which we also don't need more of. Exactly. Exactly. That's the last thing we need. You know, and I would see export facilities being built up, you know, underground storage facilities for the dirty fracked water. You know, so I just started to realize, wait, this is not just one pipeline. This is a giant fracked gas project. This is an infrastructure being built up through central Appalachia, fracking the Marcellus and Utica shells. So I've I've really just kind of got invested in that. And it also happens to fall along part of my ancestral lands. And it, it's fairly easy for me to get there from where I live in occupied Piscataway land known as Washington, D.C., so I just, I got very, very invested in, in the story and the people doing all the work, you know, West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania. So I'd say I probably have about 60% of the research done for this book. Now wow. it's just a matter of me getting my act together and getting the book proposal written and, you know. Okay, well, the, it seems like yeah. you do have your act together <laughs> quite a bit. It seems like you need about 24 more hours in a day is what you need. Yeah, and like 10 full-time employees. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I mean, all the stuff you're doing sounds amazing. I'm just like, I barely get through three things. If I get through three tasks in a day, I'm like, great day. Awesome day. (laughs) (laughs) I did it. (laughs) So much. 
That's amazing. I also can't wait to read that. Are there things that people could do to help support your work for that too? I'm kind of similar, like I said, for crushing colonialism. You know, go follow me on social media. Yes, of course. You can learn more about my work at my website, which is jdeerandwater.com. You know, I'm always available to do speaking engagements or trainings. I, you know, try to like help out as much as I can, you know, with like community organizations and and smaller stuff, especially students too. I try like when journalists, journalistic students and stuff come to me, I try to like be of help and service the best I can. Yeah. So follow me on social media, my website, spread the word about the work I do. Once again, if you have money, go donate to crushing colonialism. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. I have some questions based on some of this stuff Mm -hmm. we've been talking about. So my first question is, can you give me your opinion on a general like framework of what it looks like to you for indigenous folks to have control over land or land back or for colonialism to be pushed back like what does that actually look like for you for me that means full tribal sovereignty it means that the the rightful people of those lands have sovereignty over those lands you know it means no more american government or state or municipal or county governments it doesn't mean that we're going to kick non-natives out. <laughs> I know in, in Oklahoma, after the McGirt Supreme Court case, which I want to encourage your listeners to go check out This Land podcast by Rebecca Nagel. It's an incredible podcast. Oh, I have that on my list to listen to. Okay, Yeah, good. It's, it's a great podcast. And her season one talks all about the McGirt case, which restored 40-something percent of Oklahoma's land to tribal nations, including my nation, the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And white people just lost their minds in Oklahoma. They're like, the Indians are going to kick us off the land now. Oh, my God. And... and one, it's our land. I think we have the right. But two, that's not our traditional ways. Yeah, you know, we don't we don't believe in genocide. So yeah, we're not going to do. Yeah, we're not going to do to white people what they did to us. Jeez. I mean, that's really the fear, I think, coming from yeah. that position. It's like, like, I look, I hear that and I'm like, yeah, I think people are like, oh, my God. Well, what we did this is like the underlying fear. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is like, mm, maybe you should think about that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. So, okay. So tell me more about that. So 40% of, was that 40% of all of Oklahoma of like the native land there? What, like, cause to me, I'm like, I hear that and I'm like, that's all of America, isn't it? Like, isn't that the whole country? Like, well, yes, it's, it's all native land. This is all native land. However, much of it is not recognized as native land and tribes do not have sovereignty over their land. So like, us Cherokees, like our ancestral land is not Oklahoma. Right. Our land is throughout the Southeast, but we were removed from almost all of it. You know, we were murdered, the land was stolen, and we were eventually removed on the Trail of Tears. So that's why most of us are now in what's present day Oklahoma. And we didn't have reservations. You know, we were moved to Oklahoma, then Indian Territory said, okay, these are your reservations. And not even a hundred years later, Oklahoma statehood happened and it was, these are not your lands anymore. Yeah. But the McGirt Supreme court case reestablished some of those lands as reservations. So we now it's, it's 40 something percent of the state of Oklahoma is now back under the control of tribes. 
And so for me, it's that tribal sovereignty. That is, that is how we have our land. That is how we have our culture, our bodily autonomy. You know, it's how we have our ways and it's how we survive. And for me, that also includes the ancestral lands, you know, not just where we've been removed to, but what our ancestral lands are. Yeah. Do you have more resources that I could look into to learn more about this part, like land back stuff specifically? Because I just have a lot of very basic questions that I could answer mm-hmm. through reading on my own. And I'm sure our listeners would too. Yeah. So the Indian Collective, and it's in the let it's spelled letters N-D-N. Okay. They've done a lot of work about land back. And I know they've got a, a pretty extensive media team as well working on that. So I would say that's like a really good place to start on land back. Great. And then like I said, you know, this, the, this land podcast will tell you more about McGirt. Yeah. Yeah. And season two of this land is coming out. I'm super excited about it. Can't wait for it. (laughs) So when we're talking about land back, like this having control over things again, because I'm not an expert, I'm going to have trouble vocalizing this thought, but perhaps you can help me make this connection, is that it seems to me very much like that, in addition to the what you mentioned before about the, the forces of colonialism being the same as the forces of white supremacy that cause fat hatred, etc. seems to me like having control and sovereignty over the space that you come from that's your place is very deeply related to having control over your body as well and having bodily autonomy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Does that connection make sense? Is that Yeah. Yeah, okay. no that that totally makes sense and and I do I do see that connection. It's vast in the ways that I could talk about how yes. control over our lands is a part of our lives. But, you know, part of that I'll say is traditional food sources. Yes. You know, one of the ways that the government got so many of us under under their control, you know, yeah, so to quote say, unquote. yeah, yeah, was by taking our food sources, right. and whether that was through things like the bison slaughter, or it was just moving us from the lands we're from, and then putting us onto a new plot of land we're not familiar with. You know, they took away those foods that we'd been eating since time immemorial. And then in the process gave us something called commodity boxes, which is a a federal government program. And it's just a box of awful food. You know, sometimes it's rotten. It's, it's already gone bad by the time you get it, if you even get it. So, oh, we had the government shut down. Then we had a little break and then we had the pandemic. So during the government shutdown, the government wasn't even distributing the commodity boxes. Oh my God. And so even if you do get the food and it's not rotten, it's like flour. It's lard, yeah. it's powdered eggs, powdered milk. It's things that we have, we're not used to eating. And it's yeah. part of the reason that we have such high rates of things like diabetes and heart disease, you know, and along with that connection to ancestral foods, that also connects to a lot of our ceremonies. Mm-hmm. It connects to our worldviews. It connects to the way that we interact with one another. There's also that constant issue of pollution and resource extraction and development on our lands. You know, we have per capita one of the highest rates of disabilities in the so-called U.S., and part of that is linked to how our lands have been polluted or how rivers have been dammed so we don't have water and the fish can't come to us, you know. So there's there's a lot of ways in which land back and tribal sovereignty absolutely ties to bodily autonomy and our well-being. 
Wow. Even something so, I mean, there's the obvious basic part of like, you know, previously not being allowed out of certain spaces, literally. But yeah, it feels almost to me like there's so much to go into on this topic. It can feel overwhelming that because there's so much to be done and so much injustice. Do you get that feeling? How do you deal with the kind of overwhelming nature of what you're facing? It's tough. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm depressed yeah. an awful lot of the time. <laughs> and I don't have a lot of faith and hope in the world and humanity. Dang. And I I wish I could say that I felt otherwise. You know, I, I don't want to discourage people from getting involved and standing up and fighting for justice. But it's hard. It's really yeah. hard. It's hard to look at the world and see everything that's happening from you know, the rise of fascism, which has always been here. It's just presenting itself in a a new and different way. You know, the climate crisis. I I just some days I'm like, I don't know if anything I'm doing is making a difference. And I I don't know, I guess I just keep doing it because fuck them. I I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I mean, sometimes that's the way it feels, isn't it? I mean, yes, from an outside perspective, I'm like, you're doing amazing, you know, you're doing amazing, sweetie, dot meme, you know, like that (laughs) gif. But like the vision of what we want is so vastly different than what we have going on today. It can feel like, oh my God, like, but I guess for me, I'm like, okay, I have to stay centered in like every little bit makes a difference, you know, there's, and there's not an option not to do it, you know? Mm Yeah. But yeah, dang. Yeah. And it's, and I think too, living in DC definitely adds to my sense of doom and gloom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you're set, you're surrounded by it. You oh, know? I am. Like I'm less than a mile from the Capitol. You know, when the Capitol yeah. riots were happening, I had had knee surgery. So I was home recovering. And in my mind, I was like, damn it, this is why I should have waited to have my surgery after the inauguration. I should be out in those streets. But I thankfully could not go anywhere. Yeah, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm kind of glad you didn't. Jeez. But I, you know, I'm like the, the Capitol Police headquarters is around the block for me. And so I had a friend staying with me, just helping me out after the surgery. We're just hearing the helicopters and the oh sirens. And, you know, every day when I go out in D.C., I'm just kind of looking at the people and I'm like, who did you bomb today? Oh, yeah. Like, who did you just try to deny health care to? Oh, <laughs> like, that's that's really part of the feeling I have in parts of D.C. Of course, there's another side of D.C. that's the people who've lived here for generations. And that's very different. But that that political side of life here, some days I'm just like, wow. Yeah. The deck is so stacked against the majority of us. Yes, totally. What are the things that do make you feel more centered, refreshed at home? Um, time with my friends. There, that's a big part of it. Like I, I have a small community, a small circle of people in my life, but they're all really amazing, and they're each doing incredible work in their own ways. And you know, we check in on each other, even if it's just you know a text message, like "Hey, I'm thinking of you. How are you today?" Like, have you taken care of yourself? Yes. <laughs> and so that helps a lot. I've been trying to do better. Of course, it's hard with the pandemic. Yes. But I've been trying to make more time for 
art for the sake of art. Yes. Sitting and reading a book just because I want to read the book rather than it relates to the work I'm doing. Yes. Um, Familiar struggles for me yeah. as well. <laughs> my, my cats are also two lifesavers. I'm looking at them right now. Oh. They're just the cutest things. Here, I'll show you. I love kitties. Can you see oh, them? Oh, hi, kittens. Oh, <laughs> hi. They're so yeah. sweet. So <laughs> my cats That's too. very cute. They, they help give me life. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I think that's really valid, like especially when there's huge issues that are completely out of your control and you can only make a little bit of progress, it can feel really good to reconnect with there's this little cat that I take care of and then it sits on my lap and purrs and we have this little connection, you know, mm-hmm. like yep. this matters. This little thing matters, you know? Yep. And I, I try to spend time in nature. I try yeah. to get out of the city as much as I can. You know, traveling's hard when you're disabled. Yes. So I, I, I don't get to travel nearly as much as I would like or, or get out in nature as much as I like. But any any chance I can get away from big buildings and where yeah. I don't have like cell connectivity or Wi-Fi, I'm all about that because yeah. I need a break sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay. I want to mention two articles that we reviewed. You have written many, many articles, but there's two here that we're going to link in the show notes as well as to, you know, all these things we've mentioned and to your other projects and to your social. So this one article that you wrote, I think is really, it's both complex and a good intro for people who may not think about these topics all the time. It's called, I'm native and disabled. The U.S. government is sacrificing my people. I want to read a quote from it. Not only am I disabled and chronically ill, but I'm also bisexual, two-spirit, and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. I spend a great deal of my time just trying to get people to understand that all of my communities are real and exist. 
While I don't want to be one of the very few journalists in my communities, it is the reality. It infuriates me that our stories could further go unheard. So that's like, you know, obviously follows from what we have been talking about. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that feeling of erasure or like what our Oh, the topic is just so big and sad. I'm like trying to figure out the best <laughs> question to ask you. I mean, I guess my question is really like, what would you like us to know from this? Like, what's your bit? What is the big takeaway you want us to have from this from this article that you wrote? Like, I, you know, I read that and I'm like, yeah, of course. There's like, I go through every one of these identities that you've listed here. I like, I'm all of the like obviously we talk a lot about disabled issues and disabled rights and like the things that come up there chronically ill I know that life bisexual I know that life you know what I mean like you're and you have all these things together like what do you want people to know oh wow that's a huge question what do I, I know? want people to know good lord um <laughs> Um, sometimes when I do these, you know, interviews, some of the questions that come, I'm like, that's big and vast and we don't have enough time if for it's me too to answer big, that. We can, you can just answer, honestly, yeah, just give me um, whatever answer you want. It can be the answer to a different question. I'm probably not asking the right question. <laughs> you know, erasure is a huge problem for all of my communities, yeah. both within and outside our communities, you know, like for example, being bisexual, we're erased within larger queer community, even though we make up yes. the majority of it. Hear yes. that? Hear yep. that, monosexuals? Bisexuals yeah. make up the majority <laughs> of queer people. Um, <laughs> you know, and then we're also erased within, you know, hetero life and, yeah. you know, being native, being disabled. Like, there is just that erasure. But yet, on the flip side, we're not erased to the point that we're not being abused. We are being abused. And the erasure just happens to hide that abuse. Now, I do want to say that I don't think being visible necessarily means you won't be abused. You know, case in point, black people. Yes, <laughs> well, yes. The world knows black people exist, but that does not stop them from being targets of, of violence in a you know, variety of ways. But how do you get what you need? How do you get what you deserve if people don't even think you exist? Yeah. You know, if they think you're just a farce. And so I do spend a lot of my time having to do that. This like, you know, hey, bisexuality is real. Disabled people exist. Stop trying to institutionalize us. Like natives yes. are real. This is our land. Sign your deeds over. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And that, and that gets exhausting, especially when you're also fighting for the right to live, which I talked about on a very personal level in this particular article. Yes. You know, I talked about some of the struggles that I was experiencing during, you know, early days of quarantine, just trying to access food. You know, yes. Trader Joe's denied me the use of an elevator. And then Why? told me, yeah, they said they shut it down for COVID. And I said, well, I'm disabled and I need the elevator. And their response was, we're not turning it on. Dang. And then I asked, okay, well, there's a line out the door. Are you going to let me jump to the front of the line since I'm disabled? And they said no. And I'm like, so you're effectively telling me I can't shop here. Yeah. And <laughs> I never heard a word back from Trader Joe's on that. Not even a, like a standard form response. They acted as if it didn't exist, oh which God. is part of why I wrote, mentioned it in that article you yeah. know there's the issue with home health aids we have a huge home health aid crisis in dc and 
you know, basically no one in a position of power is doing anything about it. And the pandemic made the situation significantly worse. So, you know, that was, that was a lot of, you know, kind of what I talked about in that article is like, here are these very personal ways in which I am being impacted and others like me are being impacted yet we're being, we're being erased. Our stories are being erased from this, you know, this larger story of the pandemic, you know, and, and that also sets you up for, you know, for those in power to continue genocide or eugenics, Yeah. you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the vast majority of the people who've gotten sick and died from COVID in this country are native or black. Absolutely or not. No. And it was completely predictable too. Yeah. I mean, they, you have communities that are under-resourced and then the government didn't do much at all for us. Yeah. They did, however, get their act together to give corporations like funding yes, and course. whatnot, but God of forbid course. you like help the most vulnerable people. Yeah. Wow. We're going to have to put a note at the top of this episode. It's like, this episode's a little dark. <laughs> <laughs> Trigger warning. Jen Water is speaking. So just be make sure you take your Xanax. Come prepared. I mean, it's not – it's just like it is what it is, you know? It's like there's not <laughs> – it is what it is. And it's important to talk about. But I think that overwhelming feeling is a large part of the reason why – a lot of white people don't engage with these topics because they see that and then they go, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, you know, that kind of thing, and then don't even want to look at it. And that's so frustrating because it's like, sure, but it's actually worse for the people <laughs> who are there trying to get food from Trader Joe's. I think even the idea of approaching a lot of Native issues is scary for people in the same way that approaching climate change issues is scary. And I don't really know how to help. It's not your responsibility to help people pass that. It's my responsibility to help other white people pass that. But I don't know where to start with it. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I'm fucking freaked out, too. We just got to try. I don't know. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just tell people, like, you're going to have to get used to the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You're going to have to deal with people's righteous rage and pain yes. and their distrust of you. Get yes. used to it because yes. you create your people created this system and you keep this system going in one way or another. Absolutely. So you're just going to have to get used to being uncomfortable. It's a good reminder. I mean, I think in small ways, being uncomfortable in little bits is how I've become more of an active help helper in the world in any respect, you know, it was uncomfortable at first to learn about body justice. It was uncomfortable at first to learn more about racism. It was uncomfortable, you know, it's uncomfortable at first, but everything that I've gone through that felt uncomfortable has made me not only a better person, but just a better person in the world, which is really what's more important than my, you know, my interior soul salvation or whatever the fuck I'm thinking about. You know what I mean? But yeah, I, I just want to acknowledge that if you're listening to this and you're white and you're like, oh my God, you still have to start. We still have to try. And if you're native and you're listening to this and you're sad, you're allowed to be sad. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I try to balance between you know, showing that there is a reason to fight. There's a reason to have some sense of faith or hope, but also yeah. not falling into the traps of toxic positivity. 
Yes. Of well, oh, you know, the world is melting, but it'll be okay. Well, it, right, it's no. it's not okay, and it's probably not going to be okay in our lifetimes. Yeah. I mean, that's just the sad reality that I've had to accept is that in my life things are going to be pretty horrible. But if there's any chance in salvaging you know, some kind of future out of this wreckage, we just have to stand up and fight back. And that means doing a hell of a lot more than just writing a letter to your congressional representative. It means literally getting out there and fighting back. Yeah. And, and that also, I think, scares a lot of people. But, you oh, know, yeah. we, we don't have a choice. It's yeah, this absolutely. or death, you know, and many people have not had a choice. It's been this or death for many of us for generations. But white people, that's where you're at now, too. And it's your people's fault. So get off your asses and do something. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I want to like record all the times you've directly addressed white people and just like play it <laughs> on my <laughs> Just like. I do an Instagram post is like Jen Deer and Water at White People. And it's just you being like Hey, do this. I want to touch on this other article you wrote called No One Knows How Many Indigenous Women Are Missing or or Murdered. We have another episode coming up where we're talking about police procedurals like Law and Order SVU and who gets to be a victim on those shows and what they portray and all that kind of thing. And this is something that I thought about when we were writing that episode after I'm obviously not an expert on this topic, no, no, nor do I know anywhere near as much as you. But after having read about that long form piece that came out a couple years ago about Canadian indigenous women who were like being disappeared, that really made me think a lot about how it's the same thing as what you were talking about before with erasure from narratives not meaning erasure from from harm, in fact, meaning more harm. So I want to read from this. The Urban Indian Health Institute, UIHI, conducted the first ever report on urban missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, and the findings are terrifying. They found that many MMIWG2 weren't being properly counted by law enforcement, making it difficult to advocate for policy to help bring an end to this violence. Media coverage was also found to be abysmal, resulting in a lack of public awareness. So I think that, like, really, this article both shows a problem that I think people might not be aware of in general and also is a really, really underscores the need for organizations like yours, like Crushing Colonialism and others, because the people who get talked about are the ones who get who get helped. And obviously, indigenous women are not uh, paid attention to in this way. No, we're not. You know, our rates of missing and murdered are just so horribly high and it can all very easily be tied back to lack of tribal sovereignty, as well as just a host of laws and policies and Supreme Court cases that have been put into place that effectively just declared open hunting season on us. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are a non-native and you go on a reservation, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Anything from stealing a candy bar to kidnapping, trafficking, and murdering someone, and you're going to get away with it for the most part. Really? You know, the law... Yeah. And it's because we don't have sovereignty over our lands. There, you know, was a little bit of movement in the right direction with the 20, was it the 2018 VAWA or no, 2015. I can't recall. It was one of the, the Violence Against Women Acts where our tribes were finally allowed to <clears throat> arrest and try and convict 
domestic abusers who were non-native who committed domestic abuse on our lands. But if you committed rape, uh, it, violence against a child, we still didn't have the right to do that. And it becomes a jurisdictional issue as well where cops from outside the tribal community are like, well, I don't know who has jurisdiction. You know, it yeah. can also be issues where, you know, we have experienced a lot of violence at the hands of law enforcement. You know, so it's that's a big part of it is that we just don't have the rights over our lands. You know, it's it's ridiculous. Like I shouldn't be able to go to another country, commit a crime and say, well, I'm not one of you. So you can't try or convict me or anything like that's just a ridiculous argument. But that is the one that the United States has set in place in this country. But, you know, a little more than seven, it's like 71 percent of us, I believe, uh, is the number live in urban and suburban areas. Yeah. And we see, you know, this. This report that I wrote on in this article we're talking about, it looked at the rates of murdered and missing women and two spirits within cities, and it found that we had really high rates. Uh, what what was happening was underreported or misreported. Our our race was never captured properly. Gender could not could possibly not be captured properly, you know. And and the media is not talking about the stories either. And when they do, yeah. it is often in a very negative way, sort of blaming the victim for the violence that they suffered. So this is this is just an ongoing problem of. Of stealing indigenous people, of murdering us. You know, genocide has never ended for us. Just because it's not a recognized genocide doesn't mean it's not happening. And this is part of it. And this is also one of the reasons so many of us are adamantly against things like pipelines. Because they bring in workers from out of the area who are predominantly non-native, mostly white. These men come to our lands and the rates of abuse and trafficking just skyrocket. You know, like there are so many reasons why something like line three, while we're out there fighting it, like, yes, it's for the earth. It's because of the climate crisis, but it's also tribal sovereignty. It's literally for the right to survive. And, you know, the government doesn't care about us. I mean, they never, they never meant for me to be here. They didn't mean for me to exist. So they, they don't care what's happening to us. And I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican, they don't care about natives. You know, I worked in politics for years within liberal and democratic party organizations and stuff. They don't give a damn about us. Not a single one of them. You know, they certainly never I, prioritized. Oh, or, no, yeah. not at all. Not at all. And I don't think that liberals and progressives or feminists care either. You know, there's just such a lack of concern for native people as well as other minoritized people, you know, yeah. <laughs> that it's very frustrating. You know, these, these wars are happening and people just don't care. I mean, I think as you're saying this, I think it's really clear to me how a lot of feminism, especially white feminism, and how a lot of body positivity really rest within the you like white supremacist system that we have going on. And they really only make sense within fighting within that system, you know? Mm-hmm. Like they wouldn't be necessary in the same way with a different government set up, you know, with land back, with all these things. I don't have no point to that other than just saying like, I, it makes a lot of sense to me that these things get ignored because white feminists are busy with this other stuff that they think applies to them within this system. 
You know what I mean? Does that make yeah, sense? They're, they're too busy hashtagging and wearing, you know, their stupid pink pussy hats to actually get sure. up and fight the system that created all of this violence. Yeah. Are there things that like can even be pushed for about that you wrote about in this article? Like the missing and murdered people like people can bring awareness by posting about it or by writing about it or that kind of thing but is there anything else that the average citizen could do on this specific topic it's a big part of it is pushing the united states government to honor its trust and treaty responsibilities to us yeah and and to honoring our tribal sovereignty so if your local tribal you know, people and government is saying, hey, we don't want this infrastructure project, then you have a responsibility to support them in the ways that they deem necessary. I think that's the other important thing is that we can't just come in and say and do whatever we want to a community that's not our own. We have to take their direction. Yeah. So really, yeah, like tribal sovereignty, trust and treaties, that is so crucial. Where it all comes back to. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it'll always tie back to that. And it's also recognizing colonialism and America as a nation and as an empire. It's got to go because let's be real. The United States is not just doing horrible things to people here. It's doing horrible things to people everywhere Yeah, and, and getting away with it. And it's almost always in the name of money and power. We have to stop caring about colonialism and capitalism and start thinking in a different way. And that means that we start thinking in terms of community rather than some giant government infrastructure. So now that we've covered a couple of the topics that you are active in, and we've also covered how it can be depressing and sad and (laughs) (laughs) and how we have to push through that, and push through it being uncomfortable, especially if we're white and or non-native in order to do our part, which is, you know, I think a lot of people don't do anything. So even just like following you would be something important to do, I would say. Do you have anything else you want to share with our audience or about yourself or about the work you do or just anything, anything you, you want to cover that I, that we haven't covered today? Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure there's so much, but my mind is drawing a blank. <laughs> I guess I guess I would say that we have to remember that solidarity is important, that yeah. we have to stand with each other. You know, when I do well, you do well and vice versa. Uh, so we, we have to remember that and we have to come together and work together. And part of that means, like I said earlier, you may have to be uncomfortable in the privilege that you have, whether that's being white or it's being able-bodied or a cis man or a cis woman, you know, you're going to have to deal with that, you know, and you can also be oppressed and privileged at the same time. It's possible, you know, I, I have that I'm white coded. So I know I'm a, you know, colorism benefits me. I have social capital of, of a graduate degree and all that, you know, you can, you can be oppressed and privileged and it's important that we're doing that work to dissect where we fall within these, these systems of, of privilege and oppression and that we're there for one another and that, you know, I try to think every time I organize, you know, I do an event, you know, I'm anything that I'm doing, like, who did I forget? Mm. That's the question I always try to ask myself, like, who did I leave out? 
you know, and it's unintentional that I've left someone yeah. out, but it happens. And for me, I'm like, if I'm leaving people out, then the work I'm doing is not good enough. It's yeah. got to be better. And I would say that everyone has to think about that and, and recognize that we can always do better. And that doesn't mean that we're doing wrong necessarily or that we're bad people. It just means we need to grow and we need to learn. And we also need to learn how to hold each other accountable and take that accountability. Yeah. You know, like I, I've tried to explain to people, you know, when I hold you accountable, it's not out of, you know, anything ugly or me trying to be mean or hateful. It's because I know you are capable of more and you can do better. And no, we have in fact, to do if you better. thought badly of them, you just wouldn't say anything. Yeah. That's I mean, I, there, yeah. there are people that I'm not going to waste my time on. I'm like, yeah. there's no reason to have this conversation with you. And so I think that's important. And it's also important that, you know, when you're on the flip side of that, however uncomfortable it is, you got to sit and listen and you need to think. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of us get defensive instead. And we can't do that. You know, we, we, people we're we're kind of pack animals you know we have to be with each other you know capitalism and colonialism has told us that we're all supposed to be just individuals standing on our own like an island unto ourselves but that's not how it works that's not how life is and we have to learn to be together and stand with each other yeah thank you once again a beautiful paragraph of words is <laughs> perfect <laughs> I think that's a great place to end. Jen, thank you so much for being on the pod. We will make sure to put all of your links in the show notes. Make sure to follow Jen on Instagram, Twitter, everywhere else. At Jen Deerinwater. Those links will be in the show notes, so don't worry about writing them down. And please consider supporting Crushing Colonialism, as I will. You can find that on our Instagram. We will be tagging all these people that were mentioned. And check out those articles in the show notes that we talked about. We covered a lot today. Please let us know your thoughts on this article. We'd love, especially in the Facebook group, in the Patreon Facebook group, we're going to try to do some organizing to help people get started if this topic feels overwhelming to get into. Because as Jen just said, we all got to do it, no matter how uncomfortable it is. So thank you so much for being here, Jen. We love having you. And thank you for being a part of the family. Yeah, wado. Thank you. And that's the episode. Are you a fat person with ADHD? Call into our voicemail box at 213-375-5023 and tell us about your experience. We're working on a voice memo minisode and we want to hear all sorts of different experiences and thoughts about being a fat person with ADHD like me. That's 213-375-5023. Can't wait to hear from you. In a world where you leave us an Apple Podcast review. Basically, that world's when I pull up Apple Podcasts to see if we have a new review, and I see yours, and I smile, and I text the team about it. And you can make that a reality by going to Apple Podcasts and looking up She's All Fat and leaving five stars, baby. And we can't forget to shout out our patrons. Thank you to Katie Hitchcock, Ashley Brown, Lily Joslin, Sarah Mitchell, and Aja Anderson. We couldn't make the show without you. Bye. Bye. She's All Fat was created by me, Sophie Carter-Kahn and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash she's all fat pod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content. Please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023 and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with Acast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish, and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Lynn Barbera co-produced and edited this episode. Yelly Cruz is our magical junior producer. Our thin crony forever is Maria Vertel. I'm our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe. We love you. 